welcome to our next edition of Can We Trust the Gospels? Looking at the historicity of the first of the four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today we'll be continuing our uh, discussion as we look at some of the teachings of Jesus. Um, so over the last few weeks we've looked at some of the introductions to the Gospels, uh, some of the historical data regarding the census, and the birth narratives and chronologies. Um, and then we looked at uh, John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus. And now we're going to look at Jesus himself and some of the things that he said and did. Um, so basically what we're doing in this class is we are looking at evidence for and against uh, that historicity uh, of the New Testament and examining those historical documents to see whether or not the evidence suggests that they are uh, historically reliable. That is our, our assumption coming into this study, that they are historically reliable. Um, and we are looking at uh, evidence both for and against that claim. So I'm going to hand it off to uh, Patrick. We aren't thinking about uh, skeptical views that say that Jesus didn't exist. We talked at the beginning of the course about the kind of views that we have in mind, we're, we're, the two particular views we've been calling the trustworthy view and the untrustworthy view. And the untrustworthy view isn't the view that Jesus didn't exist. It's the view that uh, the people who wrote the Gospels are historically unreliable, that they didn't have access to good sources, that they were not eyewitnesses of the events that they're reporting on, that the Things that they are writing down are oftentimes fabrications, exaggerations, or in other, you know, in other ways are not, uh, you know, not true, not uh, to be trusted. So there are, different, there are different ways you could cash that out. You could say, you know, I think Jesus lived, but I don't think he did all those things that people said he did. You could say, I think Jesus lived, and I think he was a good person. Like, he did some of those good things that people said he did. But I don't really think he taught some of those things that people say he taught. Like, and you probably have heard some people express these kinds of views about Jesus, right? Like, I think he was a good person and, like, a moral, a moral guy or something like that. They use that kind of phrase. But I don't really think all those teachings that you find in the Gospels are really the things he said. So that's the kind of view that I think we're, we have in mind tonight. Why should you think Jesus said the things that the gospel writers say that he said? So it turns out there's a whole lot of reasons. Even when we're just really restricting our, our scope to the few little chapters that we read for this week, some of the of the parables, a few of the parables of the like 30 parables, I think, that we have recorded in the Gospels. There's a lot of evidence that uh, these are historically reliable port reports and just about no evidence against that. Um, so we're going to walk through some of the evidence and uh, yeah. All right. Well, like Charlie told us about, Parables are a distinctly Jewish form of teaching. And not only that, but Jesus' parables, as reported in the Gospels, are 
sort of distinctly full of imagery that would be well-suited for uh, being understood in the Galilean environment in which he was teaching. So the Jews were not the only people who used parables, but uh, they definitely used them. And like Charlie was also pointing out to us, um, the people following Jesus in his ministry, although they still talked about Jesus' parables, relied on that parabol- those parabolic teachings as uh, sort of heart of the gospel, uh, you know, the, the messages about the kingdom that had been passed down, they themselves didn't use parables to teach. So the likelihood that they would be able to fabricate these uh, parables that would be understandable to Jewish listeners and historically, like, geopolitically relevant to Galileans is just not very high. So, the form in which Jesus is reported to be speaking in these, uh, in these sections in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, there's very good reason to think that he would have been talking in just this way. I know that parables are not a strictly Jewish form of teaching. I don't know, like, I don't have like a list of all the cultures that have used parables. And I don't think that there's uh, strictly like a genetic relation between all of them. Like that one culture invented the parable and then that it was passed to other cultures and there's all, you know, some relation that goes back to the original parable users. Um, I was telling Justin earlier, in college, I wrote a paper that was comparing parables to Zen koans as a form of teaching, because the koan was this thing that masters told to their students that was supposed to be confusing to them. Uh, And it seemed to me like that was kind of what Jesus was doing to his disciples some of the time. But anyways, I don't know if it was true (laughs) or if what I said was right. Uh, They're very old. uh, Joanna said it made her think of Aesop's fables. Yeah, so parables, you might think, are just like extended analogies or metaphors or something like that. Um, There's probably a little bit more to it than that in terms of exactly how we analyze what makes something a parable or what's the literary form of a parable. It's sort of like a story, but it's also sort of like an allegory, but seems importantly different in some ways. Um, yeah. It'd be, it would be interesting to see just which cultures uh, have employed them and if they're, they're always in ways similar to how uh, they were employed in Jewish culture. But certainly it's something we know that they were employed often in, in a uh, Jewish context at this time. All right, so let's think about the parable of the sower. This is one that we get in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's often referred to as Jesus, uh, as his first parable. I don't know if people really think that we can know that this is the first one he ever told to people. Uh, But um, it seems to be the first one that's reported in the Gospels. And it's one of the only parables that he's reported 
Well, that the explanation that he gives is reported. So Mark actually tells us that he often explains his parables to his disciples. Um, he says this towards the end of what we read in in Mark chapter four that uh, often he's speaking in parables to people, and he doesn't speak any other way to them, but he, that he he's explaining the parables to his disciples. But with the parable of the sower, we kind of get a look in on what exactly those explanations might have looked like. Well, what one of them did look like. So that's nice. Uh, so here's some features of the parable of the sower that uh, lend some uh, credence to the idea that it's a, that the testimony about it is reliable. This is something Jesus said. So for one, it features uh, what you might call the broadcast. Well, what uh, this guy Blomberg calls the broadcast method of sowing seeds, where somebody scatters them over fields and then plows them under. This was a method of uh, of sowing that was actually employed at the time. And it's one of 13 out of the... Oh, excuse me, I said earlier 30, but out of 40 synoptic parables that elaborate on rural themes characteristic of the Galilean countryside. So something you notice a lot, Jesus, he uses uh, farming images, he uses fishing images, and what's the third one I'm thinking of right now? Farming, fishing, and sheep. Yeah, that's probably it. Farmer, fish, shepherd, and fisherman, I think, are the two, the three most prevalent kind of roles that Jesus discusses or uses in the parabolic imagery. So the sower is kind of institutes that farmer uh, imagery. Okay, so good reason to think that Jesus said this there. Some independent confirmation from external sources. Um. Also, in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Mark 8, and independently in John 9 and in John 12, so here's a case of multiple attestation, because we think that John is an independent source. We see Jesus citing Isaiah 6, 9, and claiming in this connection that he aims to harden the hearts of some people by the use of his parables. Um, So, yeah. Good reason to think Jesus said that, because not only do we have the reports in both Matthew and Mark, but there's also the report report in John. Yeah, so uh, there are two references right on the handout. Do you want to look up John nine thirty nine, and then John twelve thirty nine through forty? So in that in that John that was John nine that passage. Yeah, so that passage seems like it has him quoting the same verse from Isaiah in a different context, right? Where he's talking to the Pharisees. So John seems to give us evidence, and remember he we take him to be a distinct source, that Jesus was really concerned with this passage in Isaiah. So this is a case of multiple attestation, different sources. Not It's kind of a weird case, I guess. Normally we think of multiple attestation as like different sources reporting about the same event. I guess the John passages here are more like different sources reporting to the fact that Jesus uh, was you would say or did say maybe multiple times 
did quote this passage from Isaiah. And so it makes more likely, or it provides evidence that he would have said this in this context about the parables. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a case of multiple attestation where both John and Matthew are saying, he said this parable, and then he said to the disciples, uh, he explained that he was using parables by mentioning Isaiah. Um, but it still seems like the multiple uses of the verse in John make it more likely that he would have said it in, this, in the context of what's going on in Matthew. So yeah, it might fit better. You might this might fit better as what you'd call a case of coherence, where uh, the different works, de- uh, the details of different works sort of fit together. Great. So a pattern or theme that fits independent sources, and the theme would be Jesus is interested in uh, hardening the hearts of certain listeners by the use of. Uh, parables or other certain like difficult to understand sayings, and he quotes Isaiah whenever he whenever people are asking him about this. One other uh, multiple attestation right here. Uh, Jesus's inner circle is referred to as the twelve here, and we have them referred to as the twelve as early as in First Corinthians fifteen five, and this supports the claim here that Jesus had an inner circle of twelve disciples. One discrepancy you might worry about, and I just sort of invented this one because I thought we might want to have something to talk about in favor of the opposing view. But, well, uh, different. there are a few different details that are reported in the different versions of the parable of the sower. Uh, one example is that what the disciples ask about the parable is different in each version. So in Matthew, they say, why do you speak to them in parables? In Mark, they say, Mark just actually says that the 12 asked him about the parables. And in Luke, they say, what does this parable mean? So, I mean, one of them doesn't even report a specific question. It's right. It's just, it's a report that there was a question. Okay. So two suggestions so far. One is, uh, two different takes on the same question, not like materially really different. Yeah, paraphrase, one's a paraphrase or something like that. Or yeah, maybe they're both paraphrases of... Uh, I mean, Mark is the one that says the disciples question him about the parable. Is that, is that what he says? He says they asked him about the parables, something like that. And we usually think Matthew and Luke are using Mark for as a source. So maybe uh, Matthew and Luke are both just trying to fill in the details or something. And then Austin, your suggestion was maybe the original conversation was in Aramaic and now it's being translated into Greek. And you get, you know, between, uh, well, some things can get lost or changed in translation. Uh, third option It's not inconsistent that the disciples both asked, why do you speak to them in parables? And what does that one mean? Uh, See, so, yeah, there were 12 of them. They might have had, they probably had a lot of questions. We uh, We do see some passages in the Gospels where 
the gospel writers report the the disciples as being uh, pretty question asky kind of guys, uh, inquisitive as it were. So uh, yeah, you know, it's not. It would not be too surprising if, as Mark says, they asked about the parables, and well, in asking, they asked a couple things. One of them was, "Why are you talking to them that way?" And the other was, "What does that one mean?" So, that that's a, a resolution that seems pretty quick to hand. I think. Um, I looked through, and there are, uh, there are other kinds of situations like that where there might be things that are like apparent discrepancies. And quickly you can realize there's no discrepancy. They're just different details being reported, and they're totally consistent with one another. Uh, you could construct a whole uh, you know, reenactment of the events wherein everything that's reported occurs, and it wouldn't be inconsistent uh, as a reenactment or something like that. Good. So if the Austin's question is that the report... Or the, the actual the report of what of the content of the parable is basically verbatim between the three synoptic gospels, which is some evidence that uh, one of them is the primary source. We, th- we think Mark in pretty much all these kinds of cases. Uh, but then, when there are discrepancies, you might then wonder what gives. Whence the discrepancy? Uh, so yeah, what are some thoughts about where those d- discrepancies could come from? Are, could that be legitimate? Yeah, so we might think that they've got other sources who were there for certain of these events or know people who were there and heard about them and uh, so that they have not just Mark's gospel to pull from but also other accounts that can help fill in certain details and that adds some credibility. Yeah, Joanna's question is, if you, if you don't have anything to add to Mark's gospel, why write a gospel yourself? Elena's question is whether there's a possibility that an oral tradition, like I assume you mean like surrounding some of what happened between Jesus and his disciples, developed alongside written texts. So like uh, we think Mark's gospel got written first, but maybe also Christians were telling each other stories about uh, the things that had occurred between Jesus and some of his disciples. Yeah, so Jonah's point is basically that it would be impossible for people not to be talking amongst each other about about him, given what he did and what he said and things like that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, not to mention how many times Jesus says, don't, don't tell anyone about this, not yet. Um, there are times, too, in some of Paul's epistles where he... Uh, seems to say things that would be indicative of some oral traditions. He writes letters, but then he also says, remember the things that I taught you or the things that I told you. And if all he was, if all they needed was the stuff that Paul was writing in his epistles, you might think he wouldn't need to tell them, remember all the stuff I told you when I was there visiting you. Uh, because, you know, everything they needed for their instruction was in the letter he sent. Um, so, you know, some people who, you, a lot of times people who have a very high view of church uh, tradition tend to think that, well, there were traditions being already passed down in the church that weren't necessarily in Scripture or something like that. But you might not think that. You might just think also 
yeah, there were stories being passed down about Jesus that uh, also were used in the uh, written accounts of the Gospels or things like that. So yeah, Justin points out that in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about traditions that he has received and has passed on to the Corinthians. And his point his point is just hold to those traditions. Some, yeah, yeah, some kind of... Uh, of institutionalized tradition at that point already, and uh, one that he's not writing down in the epistles because he's just telling him he's telling him about it when he visits them, and then, um, so I mean, one thing you could wonder about with too with the parable of the sower, and probably with a lot of these parables, is whether the content of the parable has any bearing on the historical, like whether whether you give credence to its historical reliability or the, the historical reliability of the report about it. Um, so, you know, while Jesus is using a historically, uh, what, what we know to be a historically relevant form of communication for the time and place, he's saying some stuff in his parables that would have not have been very normal for the time and place. I think uh, parables would have been used by religious leaders to sort of teach about Jewish law and reinforce, like, Jewish ideas about morality and things like that. Um, They would not have been used to teach some revolutionary idea about the kingdom of God, right? Um, So does... uh, And certainly... So there's, uh, yeah, well, certainly they would not have been used to obfuscate, as Jesus says, you know, I'm using parables so that hearing they won't hear and seeing they won't see. So any thoughts about those facets of the, I mean, in the parable of the sower or otherwise in these parables? What Should, should that make us think this is more likely that these are true or less likely that these reports are true? Yeah, so we have so many reports, a super multiple attestation that Jesus was really interested in instituting the kingdom of God and in telling people about it. Was anybody else interested in that before him? Doesn't seem like it, right? We We don't have any reports about other rabbi who were going around the countryside telling people about the kingdom of God or teaching at the temple or synagogues about the kingdom of God. So the fact that the content of his parables seems uh, different than it, than how other people would have used parables. Well, it seems maybe it actually lends some support to uh, the idea that these reports about what he said in his parables is that these reports are reliable. Because this seems like the kind of thing that everyone says Jesus was telling us. Or was telling the folks that he was talking to at the time. Um, yeah. Other thoughts or any thoughts about the why Jesus is using parables so that hearing they won't hear and seeing they won't see or anything like that? Yeah, I think the only historical personage, personage I can think of like Jesus is Socrates offhand. I don't know, did the Buddha write anything? No, he didn't write anything, did he? Right. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm sure somebody has figured that out. 
and it would be good to go find the answer. And the question was just, is writing down scriptural commentaries and sort of theological views, was that a common practice for rabbi of the time? And if so, then Jesus stands out. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's a way in which Socrates does stand out because all the pre-Socratic philosophers and all the post-Socratic philosophers were writing things down and he wasn't. Um, yeah, so it'd be interesting to know if Jesus stands out in that way as a rabbi. Okay, great. So this is sort you're thinking maybe this is sort of like evident, like a, no, this, this is good. This is sort of like a, a, a criterion of embarrassment kind of evidence where if they were just making up Jesus as a character, they would, given the tenets of Christianity at the time that the untrustworthy view says the Gospels were being written, they would want to make him sound super inclusive and not like this Gnostic rabbi uh, who says, who you know, quotes Isaiah 6, 9 all the time and says, yeah, I'm going to like close their ears and close their eyes. And I'm speaking only in parables because I want to make sure that the people who aren't after the kingdom don't understand what I'm saying. Great. Uh, yeah, that's, that does seem right to me, at least. That doesn't seem like a Jesus you would make up if you were... It certainly seems like really, a really nuanced Jesus that would be hard to make up. Part, I think part of how you have to understand what Jesus is doing when he quotes Isaiah there is trying to figure out, well, there's some debate about whether Jesus is concerned with keeping the like religious leaders, the basically keeping some of the Jews who have like rejected the prophets and rejected, you know, their sort of uh, the people God has sent prior to Christ and rejected their teachings from understanding what he's saying, or if he's trying to talk to the Jews and obfuscate his message from certain Gentiles for now. And I think different people are of different, different uh, views on that. Some people think he's talking to the Jews because uh, parables are a Jewish form of teaching. And so clearly he's just, well, he's the people who aren't going to stand him, understand him are whatever Gentiles reside in that region of Galilee. And other people think, no, he, he's maybe using a Jewish form of teaching the parable, but he's doing it in this way that they're not going to get what the message is. Uh, and it is maybe consonant with some things you see in the epistle, the, in the epistles about how, the you know the prophets and uh, many you know teachers were given before Jesus came to the Jews and then well then the gospel went out to the Gentiles because there were people whose hearts were hardened in amongst the Jews and anyways so what do you think of that maybe depends on how you think about that issue yeah so you, so this is a lot, so your thought is it seems like he's obfuscating his message to the Jews. And in a way that's not necessarily like they couldn't understand what he's saying, but it's a sort of, you really got to press to understand. And saying some of the things he says in a parable is a lot less offensive than just outright uh, 
some of the claims that he makes later in his ministry that are the inflammatory things that get him get him crucified. No, that that seems right to me. I mean, um, yeah, there's even some non-parabolic ways of teaching or like claims that he makes that still that seem to be doing exactly the kind of thing you're saying. Like when he says, uh, when he, when he says he's gonna or the temple we this temple will be destroyed and I'll raise it again in three days. Um, you know, he's making the claim about that he's going to be raised from the dead, but he's not making it as overtly as he could. And a lot of those kinds of instances seem like he is, like you're saying, giving a somewhat obfuscated but slow kind of revelation of uh, all the, the truths about his ministry. And, yeah, well... Okay. Any other thoughts on that parable in particular? Or? No? All right. So, some other parables. Um, this might go quickly, but we'll give you some other points in which some of these parables give us some good evidence. So... Uh, Matthew thirteen thirty one through 32, we get the parable of the mustard seed. Well, the mustard plant was a common weed that often infiltrated grain fields. It, the seed of it was often used as a symbol for the smallest unit of size, but it grew into a large shrub comparable to some trees. Um, yeah, so some independent confirmation that this is a, is a good example that would have been useful to people in that area at that time. Uh, we've got the parable of the wheat in the tares or the wheat in the darnel. Um, and this is clearly suitable to a rural Mediterranean context. Uh, darnel is a weed that often invaded Mediterranean wheat fields. So records of people... Uh, oh yeah. So also records of people records survive of people maliciously planting weeds in other farmers' fields. So I actually read a commentary on this parable where someone tried to say, make the claim that uh, it was very unlikely that anyone would have done this, and so Jesus was obviously emphasizing that this was no ordinary enemy. That it was like that you know he was trying to emphasize just how bad Satan was by the use of this example, but. Well, as it turns out, contrary to that, we have records of people doing this kind of thing. And uh, it just, I think, uh, gives a kind of counterpoint to that. Jesus was trying to give a relatable message. Satan is an enemy, like unto the kind that you know. And uh, for us here and now, it gives us some reason to think that this is the, the kind of thing that he did in fact say. Yeah, no, this is a really good point. So Justin points out, look, if you were just making this up, you might, like that commentator, assume that no one would ever plant uh, weeds in somebody else's field, go through all that trouble to sabotage uh, a farmer's field, and they would they would get it wrong. Because, in fact, people were doing that, apparently, <laughs> at this point. Yeah, it's, it's like the internet trolls before the internet. Some people just want to see the world burn. Some people want to see the world uh, 
well, maliciously uh, planted with Darnell. Okay, so the so another point or another uh, parable. Man, my brain is not really firing on all cylinders right now. Another parable is the woman baking bread, or uh, in this case, she's hiding yeast. Uh, so. This can fit in the Jesus rural setting because although Roman city, cities had bakeries, Galilean village women baked their own family spread. So the just exact kind of thing Justin was just talking about where if you didn't understand the discrepancy between like practices surrounding baking in, uh, in Roman cities versus in Galilean villages, you very easily could have screwed this up. Oh, sorry, yeah. So this is a quote from Craig Keener's 2009 book. Is it a book or an article? So the parable of the hidden treasure. This uh, this is an interesting one. There's actually one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Is uh, So from Cave 3, this is that's gotten called the Copper Scroll. Uh, why was it called the Copper Scroll? Because it's made of copper. These people are creative. Uh so the Copper Scroll actually, unlike a lot of the Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls, which are literary works, it has written on it the, like some details about the location of some hidden treasure. So apparently this, you know, this gives us some indication that people at this time were interested in finding treasure, knowing the location of treasure, maybe hiding it away, hiding the location away, that is. There's actually some interesting different theories about what the treasure sh- treasure could be. Some people think it was like treasure from the second temple. Some people think it was treasure from the first temple. Some think, people think it was Qumran treasure, Qumrani treasure. Uh, some people think it was like a hoax. Like someone wrote down some this thing about hidden treasure, but there was no treasure there, and they were just hoaxing, fo- like another instance of trolling, uh, ancient trolling. Anyways, but... The point is that the idea of hidden treasure was we have some evidence, uh, an idea in the sort of public consciousness at the time. And uh, so quoting Keener again here, it may fit Palestinian custom revealed in some legal contracts, which would uh, which could specify the sale of not only the land, but all that is in it, freeing him to later rediscover the treasure. So right in the story, he buries the treasure on the land, then goes and buys the land so that he'll own whatever's buried there. Jewish teachers also recounted stories that included items like the pearl of great price. Uh, So we have some really good evidence that both the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable about the pearl of great price reflect ideas that were uh, occurring or around at the time. All right, uh, so fishing imagery obviously fits Jesus' setting. The fishing culture in the Galilean Sea was a, a big deal. I mean, we get stories about this. Some of you were probably in small group this week and read, well, maybe it wasn't this week for some of you. Joanna and I were, yeah, Joanna and I are a week behind. We just read about Jesus uh, getting into the boat with his disciples and telling him, cast your Nat out in the deep part and catching a bunch of fish. 
and then how he was going to make them fishers of men. He was speaking their language on the internet. Nice. So there are three different kinds of nets that these fishermen were using in the in the Sea of Galilee, and there was a th- the one that the disciples were thrown out before they were disciples was a three sided net. You said, and then they just walked away and left all that. Yeah, so that that uh, makes some sense of the smart the snarky remark we remark we get from Peter, where he kind of says, "Well, we've been doing this all night, but I guess I'll do what you say." Because so Jesus told him something that was contrary to all of his expert knowledge. Yeah, it's interesting because both Peter's snarky remark, but also his response, both show you his expertise, but also that he sensed authority in Jesus because he actually did what he said. All right, yeah, so in Matthew thirteen fifty four, which I'll read really quickly. So this is when Matthew tells us that coming into his own country, he taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom in these mighty works? There's an undesigned coincidence here with Matthew 12, 46. Because in the Matthew 12 passage, Jesus' family is seeking to meet with him. And then here in Matthew 13, we find Jesus in his hometown. Right after his family was like looking for him. And it seems plausible that there's an explanatory connection there, that Jesus' family was looking for him, so he went to go to his hometown, responded to their to the, the reaching out. But Matthew doesn't call any attention to it, as if, well, you know, it's not, like, important for his narrative. So it's, that's a form of undesigned coincidence, because these are two details that it seems like if you're fabricating a narrative, you would want to call attention to the connection between events that you clearly had design, but in a uh, accurate account of true events, there are going to be these kinds of connections that you just ignore. This is one of the passages that suggests that Jesus spoke Greek, uh, Matthew thirteen fifty five, which says, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, uh, Yeah, so forth. Anyways, uh, it's the idea that since Jesus was a carpenter, a carpenter would need to have some knowledge of Greek to do business. All right. And last thing I had uh, in favor of the trustworthy view here from what we read. So Matthew 13, 55 through 56, there is an undesigned coincidence with a number of other passages that I have listed on the handout. And these are a bunch of passages in which uh, Jesus' father, Joseph, is conspicuously absent. That is to say, there are situations where he's like, his family has come to him, or he's gone to his hometown, or in some other way you would expect that Joseph would be there, and Joseph is not. Um, And these all together suggest, without ever making it explicit, that Joseph died before Jesus' ministry started. You would think, though, that if the stories about Jesus' ministry were embellished or just made up from whole cloth, that it would be really likely that at some point somebody would put, you know, work old Joseph into the narrative in a way that was inappropriate. 
So it's just another point of coherence between the texts. Uh, yeah, it's not clear to me whether you should call this a case of coherence or undesigned coincidence, but uh, it seems to add evidences to their credibility. Okay, so one uh, point in favor maybe of the, not really in favor, but maybe apparently in favor at, worst, uh, at first of the untrustworthy view is an apparent discrepancy. So while Matthew 13.54 and Mark 6.2-6 put Jesus' sermon in Nazareth later in his ministry, Luke 4.16-30 puts it at the beginning. What should we say about that? Don't look at the handout. That's cheating. What should you say if you've got this event in Jesus' ministry, the sermon, and Matthew Mark put it at this point later, Luke puts it really early on? What's going on there? I don't think this is a thing that we've talked about with respect to the gospel so far. Great. So Joanna's point is we have some other evidence from stuff we've read in this class already that Luke is, as you put it, a dates guy. Not that he's into the fruit, but that he gets his dates correct. He's very detail-oriented. And you might think Luke is, on the one hand, very interested in the chronological succession of events, whereas Matthew and Mark are maybe more interested in thematically uh, clumping certain events together. So it is a fact that ancient biographers were not required to report their material in chronological order. This wasn't an expectation in that practice at that time. It's probably an expectation that most of us have. You don't read a a biography and want it to feel like a Quentin Tarantino movie or something like that where it's all like, wait, did this already happen or went where? Um, But that's more of like a modern uh, bias that we want everything to go from earlier than to later than. And... uh, Yeah, so this is not the only time this happens in the Gospels, that there are going to be events that are reported in both Gospels, but seemingly at different points. And you'll actually find that a lot of times, like in in this case as well, that some of these events are just introduced with a conjunction. And this happened. And they went here. And such and such. So, you know, instead of some term implying... First this, then that. And so that, that's something that we need to keep in mind as we're reading the Gospels, that, that's, that the earlier than to later than chronological project is not the thing that the Gospel writers are always interested in. They're, they are interested in telling us things that happened, but not always in this way that we tend to think about with biographies. All right. So that's some evidence to think that... Uh, at least with respect to the parables, the things that the gospel writers said Jesus said, he actually said. There doesn't seem to be really any reason to think otherwise, at least uh, with respect to those passages themselves, right? So next time, you know, you're having a conversation with someone and they bring up that version of the untrustworthy view that says, well, I think 
Jesus was a good guy and he did some good things, but I don't think he really taught all those things in the Bible. You can challenge him on it. You can say, well, what evidence do you have for that? And unless they come up with some evidence for the untrustworthy view as a whole, it doesn't seem to be very good reason to, to hold the view that Jesus didn't say what the gospel writers say that he said.